Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Thursday, October 20th, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today is an interesting one. An American advisor to the Ukrainian commander uh, thinks that Russia wants talks to return to what he called the 2014 lines. So this is a guy named Dan Rice. And he is an American serving as an advisor to the commander of Ukraine's armed forces. And he told CNN on Tuesday that he believes Russia is looking to negotiate to return to the positions that it controlled before the February 24th invasion. Rice made the comments when discussing Russia's strikes on Ukrainian infrastructure and outlining what weapons he thinks Ukraine needs. He said, quote, They are attacking the cities, trying to attack the grid, making it a very difficult winter. They are trying to, in my opinion, trying to get to the negotiating table to try to go back to the 2014 lines, end quote. So the 2014 lines, that would refer to um, the changes made in that year, in 2014, and that's when Russia took Crimea, and that's when the separatists in the Donbass region declared their independence. And um, the war in that region started. So that means Russia would keep Crimea and the Donbass. Um, there's a few ways it could go with the Donbass because under the Minsk agreements that were meant to end that war that were never fully fulfilled, um, the Donbass, the DPR and LPR, the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics would have remained part of Ukraine, but they would have been autonomous to a certain degree. Um So it could mean that, or it could mean that they're independent, or it could mean that they're part of Russia. Uh, Who knows exactly? But I just think it's interesting that this guy said this. Um, And also what he said about Ukraine's position. He said uh, of this, you know, return to 2014 lines, he said, quote, Ukraine won't have it. Ukraine wants all of their land back to the 91 lines. They really need air defense systems and aircraft, end quote. So Rice, somebody you know, I never heard of before. I saw this uh, before I saw him say this. He's an American combat veteran, a graduate of West Point, and he is the president of a group known as Thayer Leadership, which is a leadership development company based at the U.S. Military Academy in West Point. So it's I looked it up. It's you know it's based out of the the campus, the grounds of of West Point. And he was appointed as a special advisor to Ukrainian commander-in-chief, Valery Zelushny. Uh, and this was first announced in May. And Rice's comments, um, so what he's doing here, you know, in the CNN interview, and it, and it seems like it's probably a role that he's trying to fill, is saying why Ukraine needs more weapons. You know, he said they need jets and things like that. Um, but, I mean, it's just interesting that he, he thinks Russia is looking to negotiate something like that. And but his comments, they come as the prospects for a diplomatic solution to end the war seemed very slim. Zelensky, he recently signed a decree ruling out talks with Russia as long as Putin is president. And that was a response to Putin annexing the four Ukrainian territories. And U.S. officials have reportedly ruled out pushing Ukraine to negotiate, even though they don't think Kiev can win the war outright. Now, while Rice, he says that Russia is looking to return to the 2014 lines, 
Putin has signaled that the territory he's annexed may not be up for discussion. In a speech on September 30th, he called for negotiations with Ukraine, but he said, quote, but the choice of the people in Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporozhye, and Kherson will not be discussed, end quote. Those are the areas that Russia annexed. Um, and in recent weeks, although in recent weeks, Russian officials have repeatedly said that they are open to negotiations. Their comments have been rejected by the U.S., but they uh, have continued to, to signal that, that, that they want to talk. Um, and the Kremlin said last week that Moscow remains open to negotiations to achieve our objectives, to achieve their objectives in Ukraine. Um, all right. So the next one we got here, Putin declares martial law in annexed Ukrainian territories. So Putin on Wednesday declared martial law in the Russian-controlled areas of Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson. And um, I should just say, Russia doesn't control all of these. These are different oblasts. Uh, they control virtually all of Luhansk, um, but they don't control all of Donetsk, Zaporozhye, or Kherson. And Putin said that these territories were already under martial law before they were annexed by Russia. So, um, you know, you think with martial law, I guess it means that they're going to have more control over the people that live in these territories. But at the same time, I mean, these areas have been occupied under a Russian, they've been Russian occupied under a military occupation for months now uh, before the annexation. So is it really much of a difference? Um, I don't know. But that's when he signed the order, he, Putin said that. He said they've already been under martial law. Um, so he said it's been submitted to Russia's Houses of Parliament for approval. And his decree, it came as Russian-installed officials in the southern Kherson region ordered civilians to evacuate in anticipation of Ukrainian offensives. So um, these officials say that they're going to try to move 60,000 civilians from the area. Um, as they're anticipating more Ukrainian attacks. They said that they've moved 5,000 already. And Wednesday, Ukraine did launch some attacks and offensive operations on the front lines in that region, uh, but they appear to be repelled by Russia. Um, but it seems like you know they're expecting a larger offensive than what happened on Wednesday. Um, so... I'll see how that how that goes. Um, all right, the next one here: Lockheed Martin gets contracts to replace HIMARS sent to Ukraine. So the Pentagon has awarded Lockheed Martin with 179 million in contracts to replace the high mobility artillery rocket systems. That's the HIMARS rocket launchers to replace them, as well as the guided multiple launch rocket systems. So those those are GMLRS, and those are the munitions those are the rockets that they fire out of the HIMARS that have a range of about 50 miles so Lockheed has received some contracts to replace these weapons when it comes to the HIMARS launchers the U.S. has delivered 16 to Ukraine but they have also pledged to buy 18 more for Kiev and they'll get those launchers um, in the future so the contracts include 95 million for the HIMARS for the launchers and then 84 million for the rockets. These were awarded over the past few weeks. And around the time these contracts were revealed, Lockheed Martin announced that it was ramping up 
its production of these weapon systems. So Lockheed executives say that they are working to bring production up to uh, 96 HIMARS launchers per year. And the company started 2022 at a rate of 48 per year. So they double their production of HIMARS thanks to the U.S. policy of arming Ukraine. It's been a total boon for Lockheed Martin and other Western arms makers. And besides just cashing in on replenishing, because what they're doing here is replenishing stockpiles. They're replenishing the HIMARS that the U.S. has sent from its own military stockpile. But besides just cashing in on that, the U.S. is also buying weapons, entering contracts with these weapons makers to purchase weapons for Ukraine. And the U.S.'s allies in Europe, they're all increasing their military spending. And um, and NATO also has this 10-year plan to rebuild Ukraine's military um, that I have discussed quite a bit because I think it really shows you know where, where their mindset is. 10 years. I mean, they expect this war to really go on and on. Um, who knows if it will or not, but that's where they're at. And, and the focus of that plan would, the idea would be to get Ukraine off the Soviet equipment it uses. Uh, so it primarily uses NATO equipment, you know, Western weapons as opposed to Russian weapons. And that's something they want to do with other NATO, with NATO members that uh, are former Soviet states. So it's just lots of money to be made on this policy. Okay, the next one here, uh, Rep. Michael Walt. He is a Republican from Florida and he said on Wednesday that the vast majority of Republicans favor sending aid to Ukraine amid questions of how a GOP-controlled House will approach the issue. So Waltz, he's a member of the House Armed Services Committee. He made the comments to the Hill, and he also you know, threw in this totally baseless claim that Putin wants to invade NATO countries when he's done with Ukraine. That's the talking point you see from you know kind of the ultra-hawks. Um, but I guess it's pretty common in Congress. So Waltz said, quote, I think the vast majority of the conference realizes that we either pay now or pay later, that Russian President Vladimir Putin intends, if he takes Ukraine, to move on to NATO allied countries like the Baltics and Poland and Finland, end quote. So, I mean, it's just total scaremongering. But you know, he said this uh, after um, House Minority minority leader Kevin McCarthy suggested that if the House is majority Republican after the midterms, Ukraine may uh, aid for Ukraine may be more difficult to pass. He said they're not going to be willing to write a blank check. Uh, McCarthy, too, he's another one, you know, just completely hysterical about this war in Ukraine. But I do think it, you know, there is a, a small group of Republicans, it seems like that are against this policy of, of arming Ukraine, or or at least just to the level that they're doing it, because it was that $40 billion Ukraine aid bill that 57 House Republicans voted against. The zero Democrats did. The progressives in, in Congress that are good on the wars in the Middle East have really failed us on this issue. But um, yeah, I mean, Republican leadership as Waltz, I mean, I don't know if you really consider him leadership. He's on the House Armed Services Committee, but McCarthy and Mitch McConnell, I mean, they're totally on board with arming Ukraine. But I mean, and and Waltz said that the main concern is oversight. He said, quote, the issue is, and this is where members are raising concern, is we have no oversight of where this aid is going and exactly how it's being used, end quote. Um, 
because it really is incredible how there is no oversight still. I mean, they, they're saying that they're going to take steps in that direction, but we haven't really seen any. Um, but, you know, we will see how things go and who knows how midterms will go. But if Republicans are in charge, if there really will be a change, it might just be a little tougher to pass such enormous aid packages, but they'll, they'll probably still do it, unfortunately. All right. Um, so I just want to take this moment to mention again, it is our fundraiser at antiwar.com and we have matching funds right now. So every dollar you give will be doubled. We need to raise $31,000 in matching funds to secure this money. And this has given us a nice little boost. I mean, besides getting the matching funds since we've announced this, people have stepped up and started uh, donating. And, you know, we really need your help. I mean, as I always talk about with these defense, uh, the defense industry and just all the money pouring into Ukraine and how there's just so much money to be made being for this policy of arming Ukraine. And there's very little money to be made if you're against it. Um, so that's why we are uh, entirely reliant on our readers. That's uh, that's how we are able to maintain our independent line. And uh, that's why we need your help. If you read antiwar.com, if you listen to this show, um, you know, this is how we get by. So go to antiwar.com slash donate. And um, John Mearsheimer, Noam Chomsky, Colonel Douglas McGregor, they have all said to support antiwar.com, so you should listen to them. Okay, next one here. China reaffirms its no first use policy for nuclear weapons. So China reaffirmed this at a meeting of the UN's General Assembly First Committee on Disarmament on uh, Li Song. He is the Chinese ambassador for disarmament affairs. He told the committee that China, quote, has solemnly committed to no first use of nuclear weapons at any time and under any circumstances, and not using or threatening to use nuclear weapons against non-nuclear weapon states or nuclear weapon-free zones unconditionally, end quote. So currently, China and India are the only two nuclear-armed powers that maintain a no first use policy. The Biden administration's nuclear policy allows first use, and this is something that was hinted at uh, in this new national security strategy that was released this, uh, was it released last week? I think it was last week. The strategy, this is Biden's national security strategy on nuclear weapons. It reads, quote, a safe, secure, and effective nuclear force undergirds our defense priorities by deterring strategic attacks, assuring allies and partners, and allowing us to achieve our objectives if deterrence fails, end quote. So they definitely leave the room open there that they could use nuclear weapons, uh, you know, as a first use. And Russia's military do doctrine allows the use of nuclear weapons if Russia faces an existential threat, what they call an existential threat. And Putin recently reminded everybody that this policy applies to threats to Russia's territorial integrity. And Russia's territory just extended a lot into Ukraine, um, you know, and, and other Russian officials have said explicitly that this territory falls under Russia's nuclear, under the protection of Russia's nuclear umbrella. And then uh, back to what Lee said, the, the Chinese ambassador, he called on the U.S. and Russia to work to dismantle their nuclear arsenals. 
He said, quote, we also believe that the U.S. and Russia, as the nuclear superpowers with the largest nuclear arsenals, should continue to fulfill their special and primary responsibilities toward nuclear disarmament, end quote. But the U.S., I mean, the state of things between the U.S. and Russia, unfortunately, it doesn't look like disarmament is going to happen anytime soon. The U.S. has an over $1 trillion plan to modernize its nuclear arsenal, and Biden's national security strategy emphasized this. It said, quote, to ensure our nuclear deterrent remains responsive to the threats we face, we are modernizing the nuclear triad, nuclear command, control, and communications, and our nuclear weapons infrastructure, end quote. So, um, you know, again, over the past few years, uh, I mean, you know, it happened under the Bush administration too, the U.S. pulling out of arms control treaties, um, and that's played a big role in leading us to where we are today, and there's currently only one major piece of nuclear arms control between the U.S. and Russia. That's the New START Treaty. And it just doesn't seem like they are going to be negotiating more treaties anytime soon. And China China has about, the estimates put their nuclear arsenal about 300. So it's nowhere near what the U.S. and Russia have, which are both around 6,000. The U.S. has a little less than 6,000. Russia has a little more. Um, and China's saying that they need to strengthen their deterrence. So it does sound like they're going to build more nuclear weapons. Um, and so um, the, what the U.S. could do if they were serious about arms control, if they really were concerned about China making more nuclear weapons, is they would have to work with Russia to make their arsenals much smaller and then try to engage China after that. Uh, all right, so the next one, U.S. is considering joint weapons production with Taiwan. The U.S. is considering a plan to jointly manufacture weapons with Taiwan in an effort to speed up arms deliveries for the island. So this was uh, according to a member of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council. Since 2017, the U.S. has approved over $20 billion in arms sales for Taiwan, but deliveries have been delayed. According to Defense News, the island is facing a $14 billion backlog in sales from the U.S., and that includes a pretty major F-16 deal worth about $8 billion. Um, so Hammond Chambers, he is the president of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council, said that the idea of the joint production is is right at the beginning. Like, they're just getting started on... They just started discussing this idea. And the plan was first reported by Nikkei Asia, which said the U.S. and Taiwan have just begun talks on the idea. So Taiwan has been working to increase the domestic production of missiles and naval vessels, but it's not clear at this point what weapons the U.S. and Taiwan might try to produce together. Hammond Chambers said it would likely be focused on munitions and missile technology. The plan would require obtaining licenses from the State Department and the Pentagon, and they could be hesitant to issue them due to concerns of sensitive weapons technology um, getting in the in the wrong hands. But again, the U.S. seems very determined to get more weapons into Taiwan, so they might forget about those concerns. Um, you know, and they're pursuing this policy of they want to turn Taiwan into a weapons depot, as the New York Times recently put it. And they're doing this just despite the fact that it will seriously raise tensions with Beijing. And as I keep talking about, the Senate is trying to give Taiwan $10 billion in military aid spread out over five years. Um, it's just more, more efforts to get weapons to Taiwan. 
Uh, all right, the next one here, Iraq rejects U.S. threats, backs Saudis on oil production. So this is from Jason Ditz, and Iraq has, uh, you know, rejected the idea of the U.S. has been pressuring Iraq on the OPEC production because um, OPEC recently announced they were slashing oil production by 2 million barrels per day, I believe, and the U.S. is very angry at the Saudis, and the U.S., has been pressuring Iraq on this issue with implied threats of repercussions. And given that Iraq is just a generation removed from being destroyed by U.S. sanctions, I mean, uh, I guess that implies that the U.S. does have the power to uh, destroy Iraq again. Um, But instead, Iraq's foreign ministry has doubled down on supporting OPEC and the Saudis, saying the nation has to protect its interests by working together to stabilize the oil market. And a stable oil market does not mean the low prices that the Biden administration is hoping for, especially as midterms are approaching, because the Saudis said that the U.S. asked them to delay that decision by a month. Um, in Congress, again, Democrats in Congress are very furious about this, and they they they're threatening all sorts of things. Some legislation was introduced, but we haven't seen any concrete steps yet and that's what the next one here is about this is actually um kind of an analysis on the situation from al jazeera that we thought was was pretty good because um it basically the title is troubled marriage the oil spat is unlikely to break u.s saudi ties and analysts say that shared ties shared interests will sustain relationship despite washington's promise of consequences over oil production cuts. Um, And it does really seem like the Democrats, unfortunately, are more just concerned about elections. And uh, because right right now, though, I do have to mention a lot that there is this opportunity with these war powers resolution to end U.S. support for the war in Yemen. Um, There's war powers resolutions that have been introduced in both the House in the Senate, and they have, and there's a, over 100 bipartisan co-sponsors. And if you want to help out, you can go to 1833stopwar.com, and there's instructions for how you can contact your senator or House representative, and you can call that number 1833stopwar, and they'll get you connected. But if you go to the website, it's got prompts. You know, it tells you what you can read specifically too. If you have a Democratic member of Congress or a Republican member of Congress you know, what to tell them, uh, how to argue it to, to each political party. And you could also encourage people on social media. Um, again, the, the Saudi, the, the ceasefire in Yemen expired at the beginning of the month, but there has not been any uh, reports of Saudi airstrikes, which is good news. Uh, but that's it for me today for the news. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow. Again, please help us with our fundraiser, antiwar.com slash donate. Um, if you want to watch the video, we're on YouTube, Odyssey, and, and now Rumble as well. And you can like and subscribe and do all that stuff everywhere and share the show with your friends and all that. But um, I'll catch you tomorrow with some back with some more news. Thanks for listening.